I have a great admiration for anyone who can take an idea and pursue it till it becomes a reality, turning it into a profitable business. To, to see something that can be, and then to give yourself to making it come to be. It's inspiring to hear the stories of, of sacrifice and trials, of risk and innovation that often go into the beginning of new businesses. Take the late Steve Jobs for an example. After dropping out from college, he and Steve Wozniak decided that they would start a computer company. And in 1976, when Steve Jobs was 21 years old, he sold his Volkswagen van and took all the money and invested it into building a computer that ultimately would change the world. Started out of his parents' garage. And ultimately, even along the way, was fired from Apple Computers as the CEO before he was invited back to continue leading the country. Or take the life of, of James Dyson. In 1978, he was frustrated because his vacuum cleaner wouldn't work as efficiently as it did when it was new. And so he began to take it apart and look, and he discovered that it was the bag that was the problem, that the dust got collected in the bag, and very quickly it would not be as efficient as it was when the bag was fresh. And so he started working on developing a bagless vacuum cleaner. He came up with all kinds of prototypes, and when he finally found the prototype that he wanted, that he thought would get the job done, he couldn't find anybody in the United Kingdom where he was to manufacture the vacuum cleaner or to distribute it. So after 15 years draining all of his life savings, he was finally able to open his own manufacturing business and now makes the popular Dyson vacuum cleaner along with bladeless fans and hand dryers. Steve Jobs, James Dyson are entrepreneurs. They're people who see an opportunity, take a risk, work hard, and turn their ideas into viable businesses. And though not as well known as those two, we have people like that throughout our community in Southwest Florida. In fact, we have them here in this church, in this congregation, people who see opportunity are willing to go out on a limb to pursue that opportunity, and if the limb breaks, they just get back up and try again to work hard, endure setbacks, to learn from failures, take risks for the sake of seeing the idea in their minds come to fruition and return a profit. They're entrepreneurs. And there's something very commendable in the way that they approach life and give themselves to the pursuit of legitimate, noble goals. This morning we come to a passage in our study through the book of Ecclesiastes that encourages us all to cultivate an entrepreneurial spirit. This passage in Ecclesiastes calls us to be, in the language of Os Guinness, entrepreneurs of life. The lessons that we can learn from this study, I dare say, could be life-changing. They are extensive. Our text calls us to quit living scared, to quit playing it safe, and instead live open, daring lives and giving ourselves wholeheartedly to making a difference with the few years that we have left in this world. The text is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, the first six verses. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's page 559. Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6, page 559 on the Bible provided. 
And I encourage you to open up a copy of God's Word and follow along as I read. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What we're being told here is to be an entrepreneur in the kingdom of God. To think entrepreneurially. To, to cultivate this kind of spirit that sees opportunity and is willing to go for that opportunity to bring it into a reality. This chapter begins with a well-known but hard-to-explain proverb. And fortunately for us, though the illustration itself is somewhat vague, the lesson is very clear. In verses 1 and 2, we are admonished to live boldly and wisely. Look at that first verse. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. What are we being told here? Well, we're being told to do something bold, to do something risky. I mean, bread on the water doesn't last, does it? If you've ever put bread on the water, what happens? Either a fish gets it or it just dissipates very quickly. E even the type of bread that was used in ancient Israel when Solomon or the person who was recording Solomon's life wrote Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, his name. When he wrote this, even that pita type of bread, very dense, after time would dissipate or it would be eaten. The admonition is to throw this bread away intentionally on the water. But notice that there's a promise attached to it. That if we do so, we will not ultimately lose it. It will come back to us. It's interesting, isn't it? And then in verse 2, we're told to diversify our efforts. Diversify. Be wise. Be bold, verse 1. Be wise, verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. The New American Standard version of this text reads this way in verse 2. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. We have a proverb today that, that encapsulates the same type of wisdom, right? Don't put all your eggs into one basket. Diversify your investments. You don't know the future, so don't throw all of your bread into one stream. Now, there's some uncertainty as to exactly what the preacher has in mind here. Is he advocating a generous benevolence? Or is he advocating primarily an aggressive investment? In other words, does he mean by these two verses primarily we are to give generously to people and our generosity will come back to us? Or is he saying invest aggressively with a view to a long-term return on your investment and respected commentators are divided in their opinions about what he intentionally means here I don't think that we have to choose between the two because they are very closely related 
A person who knows God and is thinking the way God tells us to think like a Christian knows that being and being generous and making investments are connected. They're always related to one another. Being generous is one of the most godlike things that we can do. Why? Because God is generous. God is the great giver. He's the one who's given the greatest gift of all time. He has given us His only begotten Son to save us from our sin. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's a gift of God to people like you and me. And when we receive that gift, we become rightly related to our Creator. We need righteousness because we've sinned. We've broken God's commandments. God gives righteousness in Jesus. Jesus earned righteousness. That's what he was doing here for those 33 years on earth. He was keeping God's commandments, earning righteousness that you and I can't earn because of sin, and yet we need because God requires it. What God requires, he gives in Jesus. You and I need our sins to be paid for because the wages of sin is death. And so we deserve eternal death and that's what we owe to God. We need that. Well, God pays that debt through Jesus. Jesus comes, and that's what he's doing on the cross. He lays down his life as an atonement for sin. He pays for the sins of everyone who will ever trust in him. And so the life and death and resurrection of Jesus are God's gift to us. It's the greatest gift. And when you trust Christ as Lord, you receive this gift. And so when we think about being admonished to give, being admonished to generosity, we ought to understand that as we give, as we become generous, we're becoming more and more like God. But the question is, have you received the gift that God has given? I mean, does Christ mean anything to you? You can know all about Him, but if you've not by faith trusted Him, taken Him to be your Lord, if you've not turned away from your sin and acknowledged Jesus Christ as your only salvation, your only way to God, and embraced Him by faith, then you have not yet experienced this gift of salvation. And I would encourage you to do so today. And God brought you here today to hear this. There's a gift that He's given. And you may receive that gift by repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus Christ. And it's your greatest need. It would be a joy for me or anyone in this church to talk with you further about that. How this thing that God has done in Christ can become yours. How you can know you're rightly related to God through the Lord Jesus. God is the great giver. We see that in the gift of his son. He's given us in Christ, the Bible says, all things. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.21, that with him we possess all things. As a result, people who know God seek to become like God and will also become givers. To be rightly related to him is to grow more like him. And as a person becomes more and more godly, it is inevitable that he will become more and more generous, more giving. I think this is what Jesus had in mind, at least in part, when he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. We all know the blessings of receiving. The things that we like or enjoy or desire or need and they're provided for us. We sense that blessing. But Jesus says it's even more blessed to give than it is to receive. When we give, 
we are exercising our dependence upon God for the thing that we're letting go of, we're now going to be without, and so we will need His support even more with the things that we're left with. But we're also, when we give, reflecting the very heart of God. We are being like God, and there's blessing in knowing the work of God in our lives that makes us more and more like Him. We're never to give as if we are entering into a business transaction with God. God, I've given you this, therefore you owe me that. Or if I've done this, then shouldn't I expect you to do that? And as if we are negotiating some type of trade arrangement with God. Though we should never have that mentality when we give. We should take God at His word. We should believe His word. So when He says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days, we should take that as God's word to us, God's assurance that nothing that we do in His name, nothing that we give away in His name is going to be something that we lose forever. I think this is exactly what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, when He says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You can't outgive God. And as we give, we, trusting God, taking Him at His word, can expect that He will provide for us in exactly the way that Jesus describes it. So it's obviously right to give generously from our resources to meet needs. And as we do so, we can be sure that these acts of kindness and generosity done in the name of the Lord will not be forgotten by Him, but rather will result in blessing from God. But I'm convinced that Colet, the author, has more in mind in this text. I think he has in mind here an attitude toward life that is willing to take risks in order to get a good return. In one sense, giving away yourself and your resources to meet needs to help someone is indeed an investment. It's an investment. You don't know how it will turn out, but the promise of God is that it will not be forgotten. But in another sense, one important reason that we should seek to make a good return on our investments is so that we can be more generous. Have you ever thought about the fact that God intends for you to make money so that you can give money away? It's exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Listen to what he says. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. A man who'd been a thief and now has come to Christ, has become a Christian, been changed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, Paul says, don't continue stealing, but instead of stealing, work diligently, invest your life in something so that you make money, and then you see what he says, so that you have something to share with anyone in need. Part of the reason that God intends for us to work, to make money, is so we'll have resources to share with those in need. In this sense, to cast your bread upon the waters is an encouragement to make investments with a view of seeking a return. And with the imagery that is used, bread, inevitably dissolving into water, I think the preacher is telling us that we need to be bold in making investments. We need to be willing to, to be risky 
in making investments. When there's a prospect of a good return, then we ought to be willing, trusting God, and evaluating things to make an investment in the anticipation of securing a return. In Solomon's day, one of the riskiest enterprises, investments, was sea trade. When ships would set out from the ports of the Mediterranean to go to other places on earth in order to engage in trade, you weren't sure they would come back. In fact, many of them never did come back, and there are a lot of uh, wrecked sea vessels on the bottom of the floor of the Mediterranean. If they returned at all, it would be months, years, before they would come back. It was a lucrative business to engage in sea trade, but it was incredibly risky. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 22, tells us about Solomon's own engagement in it. He had ships, he had uh, a fleet of vessels in two different ports, and we read in 1 Kings 10, 22, that those ships would return once every three years, bringing back gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. A great bounty would come, but only every three years. Imagine that. You make the investment. You provide the ship. You provide the crew. You provide the resources. And you send it out. And you don't know for three years if they sunk, if they made it, if they stole it. But when they came back, man, there was a return on the investment. What the author is saying to us in our text can certainly be applied to our finances that we need to be willing to make bold investments with wisdom. Look for a good return. But as verse 2 says, diversify your investments. And as the Lord prospers you, seek to be generous in your giving. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 8, we ought to seek to excel in the grace of giving, try to grow in our ability to give more and more. That's, that's clearly practically one application of this text if you have resources and an aptitude to make investments don't hold off be wise get good counsel don't put all your eggs in one basket but cast your bread upon the waters patiently wait for a return but this principle applies far beyond just our money it goes deeper than that it applies to our very lives the preacher here i think is advocating a worldview He's challenging us to think about the world from a perspective that we might otherwise be tempted not to consider. He wants us to think about life, all of life, how we live day by day with this sense of opportunity. Just as Steve Jobs sold his car, risked all of his money to build a computer that would ultimately have tremendous impact around the world, so God calls followers of Jesus to invest our lives in the cause of his kingdom. This is exactly what the Apostle John meant in 3 John when he speaks of those who left their homes and went out, he says, for the sake of the name. <laughs> they invested themselves in risky business for the sake of Jesus. This is how the Apostle Paul described his friend Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. He tells the church at Philippi that they are to honor Epaphroditus and men like Epaphroditus because, Paul says, he risked his life in the service of Jesus Christ. That, that word risk, it's the same word that gamble. 
Roll the dice. And it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 15 when the Jerusalem council sends Paul and Barnabas on their way with a letter that commends them as men who have risked their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. They gambled their lives for His cause. They saw an opportunity. They saw a need. They took stock of themselves, their own resources, and they determined that the opportunity to make Christ known was worth the risk. So they cast their bread upon the waters. They did something, and then some people's vantage point from their perspective looked foolish. Bread's going to just dissolve in the water. This is not going to last. But they did it because they wanted to honor their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is a question we need to put to ourselves. Is this the way we live? Is this the way you approach life? Is this your worldview? Is this something you think about ever or regularly? That God has given you all that you have and you are what you are because of His grace and provision and that you're a steward of that and so you ought to be thinking strategically of how you can leverage your life for the sake of His kingdom. Have you ever thought of ways that you can invest your time, your years, your resources right now in order to make Christ known? Are you a businessman, businesswoman? Do you see your business as a way to invest in the kingdom of God? Do you think, plan, risk, and work with the conscious thought that you're doing what you do for the sake of Christ? That this can benefit the name and reputation of Christ? Are you an employee? Do you think of your daily work not exclusively as a way to make money, but also as a way to make Christ known? Do you see your place of employment as a mission field that you've gone into for the sake of the name? You mothers, do you think of your efforts of raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as risking your life, laying down your life for the sake of Christ? If you do, it'll change the way you think about changing a dirty diaper. It'll help you in the middle of the night when the baby or young child is sick and you've got to stay up with them all night, it'll help you when the teenager comes in at 2 o'clock and says, are you awake? Can you talk? And you engage their doubts and fears and try to understand them and shepherd them instead of sleeping. You do it for Christ's sake. Are you a student? Then cast your bread upon the waters by developing your mental life so that you can more accurately understand God's word and begin to subdue his world the way that he's called us to do. Risk your reputation. Risk your comfort. Risk your popularity in order to make Jesus known to classmates and teachers. You a single adult? Maybe you're retired? Think and pray of ways that you can invest your life in spreading the gospel Become an entrepreneur in the kingdom of God. That's what we are being admonished to do. You do that, first of all, by being bold and wise in both your investing and your giving. But then also in verses 3 and 4, you do it by being realistic without being paralyzed. Be realistic, but don't let realism freeze you into inactivity. 
You know, as the Civil War was just beginning to take shape, many of the citizens, particularly in the North, had a very romanticized view of what this war would be like. The first major battle was fought at Manassas in Virginia, 25 miles southwest of Washington, D.C. It was on July the 21st, 1861. Residents of D.C. loaded up their wagons and actually traveled to Manassas with picnic lunches in order to watch the battle scene there. They, some of them took their opera glasses so that they could get a better view. It was as if they were going to a theater. But by the end of the day, when the Union forces had been routed, they were retreating in disarray. Bodies and blood were strewn everywhere. Those spectators were forced to come to terms with the reality that war is not entertainment. War is horror. They had to see the reality in order to understand what was really going on. And what Colette is doing here in our text is not calling us to a romanticized view of life where we think, oh yes, I'm just going to take everything I have. I'm going to invest it. I'm going to risk it over here in this cause. Rather, he is telling us that as we think about our lives and give our lives to an eternal cause, that we do so with our eyes wide open. So we read in verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where it falls, there it will lie. In verse 2, he's just said, we don't know what will happen on earth. We're not omniscient. But now in verse 3, he says, but there are some things we can know. And the things we can know, we need to think honestly about. He gives two illustrations to help us. We need to think honestly about reality and the things God's revealed that can be known for certain. Rain clouds deposit rain on the earth. When trees fall, they stay where they land in their natural uh, habitat, in their natural occurrence. When it falls, that's where it will lie. So when you come across a tree that's pointing north on the ground, you can know the tree fell to the north. These are just simple, self-evident, reliable truths that we ought to take note of. They're examples of things about which we can be certain. We can count on them. We can know them. But the fact that we can know these types of things doesn't mean we can know everything of life. Everything that goes on. That's the point of verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. You see what he's saying? There's some things you can know and you ought to know them. You ought to be honest about them and acknowledge them and say, yeah, this is certain, this is sure, you can bank on it. But there are other things you can't know. Is the wind going to keep blowing? Is the rain going to rain a long time? And the things that you can't know should not be allowed to paralyze you in inaction. These, again, are the two examples that he gives from nature. He describes a farmer who's unwilling to plant because it's windy. The ancient method of sowing a field was taking a bag with seed in it and by hand you walk across the field and you throw it and of course if it's windy too windy what happens the seed gets scattered in places that you do not intend and so he's saying here a man like that who is watching the wind will be fearful of having too much of his seed blowed away and so he'll just not plant or like a a farmer who has his field his crops already in the field and they need to be reaped they need to be harvested but he looks and he sees the rain he says oh no if it gets wet it's going to ruin so I'm just going to wait because it might rain 
And so they are paralyzed into inactivity because of things that they do not know. These are examples that highlight a foolish way of living. Being motivated to do nothing by fear of the unknown. The wind might blow too hard. The rain might fall. This kind of paralysis is not limited to farmers. How many times have you hesitated to do something worthwhile out of fear? You, you know it would be a good thing to attempt. But you hold back because you're like, well, it's just not the right time. It's not the right circumstances, not the right conditions. So you wait and you wait for perfect conditions, perfect timing. And as you wait, the opportunity just passes you by. It's like a baseball player who goes up to the plate and he's waiting for the perfect pitch. And he gets one low across the corner. And he gets another one across the other corner. And he gets one just right, but on the outside edge. And while he's waiting for the perfect pitch, he gets struck out. He never swings. You know, in 1927 and 1928, Babe Ruth led the Major League Baseball in home runs. You know who led the league in strikeouts those two years? Babe Ruth. If you're going to hit the ball, you're going to have to swing. And sometimes you're going to swing and miss. But the fear of missing can't keep you from ever taking a swing. I used to tell the girls I coached in basketball, you will miss every shot you don't take. If you never shoot, you're never going to score. And you can be sure that every hesitancy to take a risk for the sake of Christ comes with a plausible excuse of why you should play it safe. But it makes sense that you wouldn't swing. It makes sense that you wouldn't risk. Our text is challenging us to think like this. Recognize that you live in a fallen world. And while some things are certain, many other things are not certain. And you simply cannot be assured that if you send a ship across the seas for profit in trade, that it will ever come back again. And you can't guarantee when it will come back if it does. But don't let the uncertainties of this world prevent you from living boldly and risking your life in a worthwhile cause. Leverage your life. For the sake of God's kingdom. That's what we're being admonished to here. I mean, are you talented? Use your talents for Christ's sake. Do you have gifts? Offer them up for His service. Do you have time? Use your time to make Jesus known. Don't wait till you're older. Don't wait till you finish school. Don't wait till your kids are grown before you start risking your life for the sake of Christ. Do it now. Be bold and wise in both your investing and your giving. Be realistic without being paralyzed. The last thing that we see in our text is in the last two verses where we are admonished to work humbly and hopefully. Look at verse 5. And you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones of a womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes all things. Humbly admit, there's just a lot in this world you don't understand. It is God's world, after all. He is the one who has made it. He is the one who's sustaining it. With all of our advanced technology, we still have to admit 
that the creation of a child in a mother's womb is in large part a mystery. It's amazing how the breath of life comes to that little baby. Like other works of God, even with all of our vast knowledge that exceeds that of the authors when he originally wrote this, there are galaxies still unexplored. There are micro-elements that have yet to be discovered. And as we humbly admit our ignorance, we must admit also that God's the one who has created, who rules and overrules over all of creation by his own power according to his own will. What we're being reminded of here is that we need to remember our place in this world. We're creatures made by God for God. He is our Lord and Master. We're dependent upon Him for every breath we take. Our lives belong to Him. So His Word, His will, should be what matters most in our lives. You know, accepting this point of view, accepting this reality, is one of the most important and beneficial steps that you can take in order to live well in this world. And parents, the sooner you teach it to your kids, the better off they will be. The world is not here for them. They are here for God. God's the one who created them. God's the one who's placed them where they are, made them the way that they are. And if they see God as their creator, and the fact that they and everyone exists for him, his ways are not only right, they're what's best for us, then they will come to see their place in this world as creatures under the lordship of the creator. You know, as you come to grapple with and acknowledge and submit to this fundamental truth, then your whole outlook on life will be oriented toward a humble dependence upon the God who made you. You'll admit that it is wise to trust this God, to take him at his word, and you'll give yourself to doing so. This means that you'll come to passages like this and you'll resist the urge to play it safe. But you'll be willing to open up your life to risk, to uncertainty for the sake of his kingdom. And not only will you work humbly, but you'll work hopefully. That's verse 6. In the morning sow your seed. At evening don't withhold your hand. For you don't know which will prosper. This or that. Or whether they'll both alike be good. You know because you don't know what will happen. Or whether what you do will prosper. Be diligent to do what you can. As you can. Remember God. And work hard. Take advantages of opportunities to make your life count as those opportunities arise. If your efforts result in lasting fruit, praise God. If your efforts don't result in lasting fruit, well, thank the Lord knowing that He is wise in doing things that you can't fully understand and He has His reasons that will be made known on the last day. Now, so many people refuse to start or they give up in a good cause because of fear. Fear. It paralyzes them. I mentioned James Dyson earlier that he spent 15 years developing his bagless vacuum cleaner. You know that over those 15 years, he came up with 5,126 prototypes that didn't work. <laughs> he just kept going until he found the one that was exactly the way that he wanted it and developed that world-famous vacuum cleaner as a response. God's the one who prospers the work of our hands. 
God's the one who makes us successful. He's the one who determines what efforts will prosper and what efforts will not. So humbly trust him and work hard with whatever opportunities come your way. Some people let the uncertainty of success inhibit them from trying. But you see that that's exactly opposite of what we're counseled to here in our text. It's because we don't know that we hear God speak in his word what, the, what we do know and we humbly and hopefully trust him to prosper our efforts as he sees fit. You know, that, that had to be the mentality of the farmer that Jesus describes in those par- that parable of the so- sower and the soils. And this guy goes out, got his bag of seed, and he scatters the seed. Jesus says, he couldn't have known how much of that scattering would result in a harvest that would be useful. In fact, the parable, Jesus says, that three-fourths of his seed didn't result in any harvest. It fell on hard ground, the, the pathway. fell on stony ground, so it just sprang up and died. It fell on, on thorny ground, so it sprang up and it was choked out. No harvest. Only one-fourth of the seed that he scattered fell on good soil and produced a harvest. And yet he went out. He went out. He went out with the very mentality that we're being called to cultivate in our passage. Brothers and sisters, that's to be our outlook. Acknowledge our ignorance about things we cannot know and control or understand. And then humbly, hopefully, depending upon God, give ourselves to doing the things that we can for the benefit of his kingdom. God calls us to be entrepreneurs in his kingdom. To take risks in order to make the Lord Jesus known. So again, I ask, are, are you doing that? Do you think that way? Young people, I want to ask you something. You, you, know, you, you may be thinking about your future, what you want to be. Have you thought about risking your life in the great cause of making Jesus known to people who are in the world today having never heard his name? What better way to spend your life? Would you think about that? Would you pray about that? Do you have resources that God has entrusted to you that you could leverage for the sake of Christ? If so, brother, sister, leverage them. You remember the story that Jared read earlier? Matthew 24. When Jesus tells about a guy who was wealthy and he has three servants and he gives one of his servants five talents, a great deal of money. He gives another one two. He gives another one one. And those guys with the five and the two, they had a lot more than the guy with one. But rather than hoarding it, they went out, they risked it. They invested it so that they doubled their money. And when the master comes back, you remember what he said to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. But you remember the guy who only had one? What did he do? I'm afraid. I'm afraid I might lose this. I don't know what will happen to me if, if he comes back and I have nothing. So I'm just going to bury it. I'm just going to hold on to it. I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to risk anything. And when he comes back, he tries to use that as an excuse to the master as to why he just hoarded it. He says, well, here it's back. I, I haven't lost it. I didn't lose anything. You remember what the master said to him? You wicked and sinful servant. 
He says, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers that my coming, I should have at least received my own with interest. We're being called to cultivate an entrepreneurial spirit outlook in how we live our lives. Brothers and sisters, we ought to spur one another on to do this. You might see something in others that they do not see in themselves. And as we think together about what God has done and the way he's made us, how he's positioned us, the opportunities he's given us, let's spur each other on to roll the dice for the sake of his kingdom. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's the way he calls us to live. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for speaking to us in ways that disturb us and awaken us out of drowsiness and apathy. We ask that you would take your word today, plant it deep in us, O oh God. I pray that you would raise up from this congregation an army of men and women, young people, who will be willing to risk their lives for the sake of the name. Lord, raise up people from this church who will go to hard places to make Jesus known and will see it as an incredible opportunity. Raise up men and women, young people from this church that will be shrewd business people who will see their efforts in business as opportunity for the advance of your kingdom. Raise up workers, employees in this church, employers who will recognize that the place where they spend so many hours a week is a mission field where they can represent Jesus Christ. We need your help. And we will not live this way unless your spirit comes and works in us and creates in us this type of vision that is grounded in the goodness and the grace and the glory of our Savior. So for Jesus' sake, hear us, answer us.